Welcome, good morning. My name is Dan Song, and I'm one of the pastors here at Restoration, and it's good to be together this morning. I invite SJ to come up and preach for us. No, I'm kidding. I, uh, <laughs> I did ask him last night if he would, because uh, we just miss him. And uh, it's great to see their family here with us uh, this morning. For the last three weeks, we've been looking at 1 Samuel, and we've called it King of Kings. And the reason for that is because whether the people of God had kings or not, God was their true king. And he has been faithful through really dark times so far in this story. And so for the first three chapters, what we've seen is this building up of this man named Samuel. He was born from a barren woman named Hannah. And last week we saw how God raised him up when the word of God was rare. Remember that last week? When it was rare, God raised him up for the office of prophet to bring God's word that would be regularly present amongst God's people. And so last week was this turn in the story. But what's fascinating starting today is that for the next three chapters, we actually don't hear about Samuel. We will not hear from Samuel until chapter 7. Because the next three chapters are all about the ark. The ark of the covenant. And we'll look at that a little further down in this homily. But what we'll see is, as Dale Ralph Davis says, he's a commentator, he says that these chapters are lessons on archaeology. You get it? Archaeology. I know. I, I like that. There we go. Nice. Oh, was that you, Caleb? Nice. He appreciated it. So that's what we're going to look at for the next three weeks. Look at this this Ark of the Covenant and what God has to teach us about. So let me pray for us as we get started here this morning. Lord, we give you thanks for your word that is not rare today, that we have it here in your word that's given to us. And so, Lord, I ask that you would speak to us. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes to see so that we might be transformed by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus. Do that work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. As today's title, it's called Superstition. Well, not that yet. That's not superstition. <laughs> but it's called Superstition. And one of the things I thought about is that where is one of the places that we see superstition play out all the time? Sports. And namely baseball, right? I was gifted uh, the, the privilege finally to check off on my bucket list being able to sit in the green seats at Bush Stadium on Friday. And it was awesome. You, not only did you get to eat all the food you wanted and it said zero, zero, zero dollars in the subtotal, but what was even better was actually seeing the players right there in front of you. And each player that came up, I could tell religiously what they were going to do when they came up to the batter's box. There is this superstition in baseball that you never do something that's different from your normal routine because you want to succeed in the game of baseball. I remember even for me in basketball when I played, I would have the same routine for my free throws. It would be three dribbles, a twirl of the basketball, and then look up and shoot because I don't want to be distracted by the fans. Every single time, that was my routine because why? I thought that superstitious routine would give me success with my free throws. One of the one of the things that I remember, especially with football, was when the Bears were actually good back in 2006 and 2007 when they went to the Super Bowl. I remember when the first playoff game happened for the Bears, I donned on my Bears jersey. And after they won the first game, 
I religiously and superstitiously did not wash my jersey because they won. And then they won again. And then they won again. But we know what happened if you follow the Bears or you love football is that they lost in the Super Bowl against the Indianapolis Colts. Superstition is fun and it can be silly. But when it comes to our faith, and especially with Christianity, it's actually no fun at all. Actually, it's actually dangerous, as we'll see here in this story. Because what we'll see is that the Ark of the Covenant for the people of God becomes this superstitious thing, an object that ruins their faith. So here you see a picture of the Ark of the Covenant, and it was this rectangular, rectangular chest made of acacia wood, but it was covered in gold. And inside this chest was the Ten Commandments that was given to Moses. It contained this bowl of manna that was food for the people of God in the, in the wilderness. And lastly inside was the, was the rod of Aaron or his staff. But most importantly, what this represented was God's presence for the people of God. And God's presence would be right between the two cherubims with their wings spread out. And God would be present for them so that whenever they saw the Ark of the Covenant, it would remind them that God was with them. So in the wilderness, whenever they went into battle for the 40 years, what happened? The Ark of the Covenant would lead the way with Moses in front. And they would be reminded God is with us in this battle. When they crossed the Jordan River... The Ark of the Covenant led the way and they were reminded that God was present with them as they crossed the Jordan River. And when they went to Jericho, as they conquered Jericho, that Ark was there reminding them that God's presence was with them no matter what. But what happens here is that no longer is it a reminder of God's presence. Rather, what they begin to see this thing as is a superstitious object. That the line between God himself and the ark become blurry. What we'll see here is rather the, super, the line between superstition and real faith in Jesus or in God becomes blurred. And that's what we're going to see here in this story. So read along with me if you have your Bibles open or you can follow along on the screen. We're going to start in verse 1 and see what the Lord has to teach us about superstition and faith. Now Israel went, up to, went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with, with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, 
For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated. And they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell, and the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Now, stop there a moment. Here's what I want us to see. God disappoints us. You're going, wait, what? Is that like, I'm here to hear something else. But here what we see is God disappoints us when we think that we can actually treat God like a rabbit's foot. When we think we can control God, God often disappoints us. And here in this story, that is absolutely clear. What's going on? Israel and the Philistines, who are their arch nemesis, come into battle. And what happens? Israel loses. 4,000 men die. That's a lot. So they regroup. And what do they do? These leaders go, they ask themselves, why has the Lord defeated us today? That is a good question. When we look back at Habakkuk at the beginning in January, when we looked at the Psalms of Lament, what do we always realize? We have permission to ask questions like this. Why? Why suffer? Why does the Lord seem to be silent? Why does the Lord seem to be absent? These are questions that we have permission to ask and a right to ask of the Lord. And they do that. They say, why has the Lord defeated us today? But they don't stay there long enough. Rather, they quickly go to, a, to the answer or to their solution. What is their solution? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and what? And save us from the power of our enemies. In other words, what they realize or what they conclude is that if we failed, why? Because we didn't bring the ark with us. Think about that. If we just bring the ark into battle, God will have to deliver us. God will have to give us the victory. Why? Because it's for his name's sake. It's for his honor. But what happens? Do they win? No. It gets worse. They get slaughtered. 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel die. And here you see how God disappoints them when they try to control him and treat him like something in their back pocket that could just bring out and win and find success and victory. My children actually do this really well. So when, when they want to have a play date or a sleepover, guess what they do? They don't come to us. They first text or call their friends. And they go, hey, let's have a sleepover. Or let's hang out. And then somehow... It gets to their parents, and the parents then text my wife and me and go, hey, I heard that uh, your child is going to sleep over. When should I pick them up? And now that's genius. Why? Because if we say no, we look like the bad person, right? We look like we're the buzz killers. And this is what the Israelites were doing. It was this pressure tactic. It was a way to twist God's arm to say, if we bring you out into battle, this ark, then you have to deliver. Otherwise, you look like the loser. You look like the one who is actually in defeat. And what we see here, God actually does that. 
He disappoints them. Why? Because this is a way for God to actually get to our hearts by disappointing us. Because he wants to have a real relationship with us. A faith that isn't one that's like a genie in a bottle, but one that says we want to know who God is for who he is on his terms. We do this all the time. It's not just my kids. Even this morning, when I go to the Lord in prayer, when I wake up early and I pray to the Lord, there's also a part of me that goes, I'm praying to you, God, so this sermon better be like the bomb, right? There's some of that that always happens. When you go into a job interview, when you apply for schools, when, you, when you're trying to save your marriage, aren't those the things that we think about? We treat God like this superstition, like a rabbit's foot and say, if I go to church this Sunday, if I read my Bible, if I pray, then what? God will have to deliver. He can't say no. This is for his glory. I'll give him praise for all the ways that he blessed me. But what God wants to do is undo this ugly, horrific idea that we could put Jesus in a box, put him in our back pocket and control him. And I know some of us are angry. We can be honest because we've done all the things that we need to do to check off the boxes of going to church, of being in a community group, of praying, of reading the Bible, whatever it is. And yet God has not come through for you. And you're angry. And we wonder if this thing called Christianity is actually worth holding to. But maybe it's actually worth losing because what you had wasn't faith. It was just superstition. And God wants to undo all that by disappointing you so that you might have a real, authentic, honest relationship with God that is not like what the world says. God disappoints us. Let's continue in this story because not only do we see God disappoint us, but as we see in the midst of all this disaster, what do we see happen when this news of the disaster gets back to Eli the priest? Starting in verse 12. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is this uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And Eli said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the, good, who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also. Hophni and Phinehas are dead, and the ark of, the uh, ark of God has been captured. As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel 40 years. There's no way around the fact that this is absolutely devastating for God's people. And what we see here is that God fulfills his word. Despite all the devastation, despite all the disaster, God still fulfills his word. 
God accomplishes his purposes and keeps his word for his people. Now, I say that very carefully. And why I say this carefully is because this reason of God fulfilling his word and accomplishing his purposes is not an explanation for all the brokenness and tragedy and suffering and death that we experience here on earth. We cannot explain away all the tragedy and brokenness. If you've been following the news this past week, we saw in Miami that apartment complex come down. We don't know how many have died, how many are suffering. But this is not the time to say, this is, the, this is the explanation for why God does these kinds of things. No, we don't know why. We are not in a place to explain why there is so much suffering. But what we see here is that despite of all the evil in this world, God still somehow in his sovereignty, fulfills his word and accomplishes his purposes mysteriously. And we see that clearly here. How? Well, the old regime of evil sin and unfaithfulness of Eli and his sons is now gone. That family no longer is in the world. And God had promised that, right? This was God's judgment to them. And he told them in chapter 2 through a prophet and then chapter 3 through Samuel that, that Eli and his families will be judged and will no longer be. That God will wipe them away. And through this tragedy and disaster, though God seems to lose, right, God seems to have lost. God still uses it to fulfill his promises to his people. To take away the false prophets and the pr- false shepherds. So that he might actually bring about what he promised. Now listen. God doesn't just work in the world to accomplish his purposes. God actually works in each of us personally through disaster and hardship. Even as I look in this room. I know that there are people here who are sitting who have gone through hardship. You have shared with me your struggles and disasters. And suffering. And you can come up here right now if I gave you the mic. And you would be able to share how despite of evil and injustice and brokenness. God somehow used those things to bring about his purposes in your life. I know that as a fact. And that's a beautiful thing. That in spite of brokenness, God can still use you. Ann Voskamp, who's an author, she wrote this book, The Broken Way. And she describes how her husband, who's a farmer, whenever they look out into their fields, what, uh, what it reminds them of is all the fracturing and all the breaking that takes place in order for fullness, harvest, and a feast to happen. Listen to her words. She writes, the seed breaks to give us the wheat. The soil breaks to give us the crop. The sky breaks to give us the rain. The wheat breaks to give us the bread. And the bread breaks to give us the feast. What a beautiful reminder that in the midst of breaking, in the midst of hardship, though we can't explain why, God still in his masterful, beautiful ways will take what is broken, what man intended for evil, God will somehow use it for good.
Isn't that what we hear and read in God's story from beginning of Genesis to Revelation? See, God disappoints us. God fulfills his word. But lastly, what we're going to see here in this last portion of the story is that God suffers shame for us. God suffers shame for us. Let's read on, starting in verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phineas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel. Because the ark of God had been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, the glory has departed from Israel. For the ark of God has been captured. Here, what we see ultimately is what faith looks like rather than superstition. God suffers shame for us rather than to carry on some false relationship with us. Because he desires to be in relationship with us. Phineas' wife goes into labor, and upon hearing the the news, she's so stressed that she gives birth. And as she's dying, she finds out that she's having a son. And what does she call her son? Ichabod. And what Ichabod means is no glory, or where is the glory? What that actually means is that God is exiled, God is banished. And we see that twice at the end of this passage. The glory has departed for Israel, from Israel. The glory has departed from Israel. Twice we're reminded of that. Why? Because that's significant. In the midst of all the judgment here that we see that the people of God deserved, God himself, his presence is exiled and cast out, banished from the people of God. And what happens to God's people? What happens to them? Are they banished and exiled? No. They get to go home. They get to go back to their land. The ones that were mistreating God were the ones that got to go back home. And what happens to God? He's the one who's banished. He's the one who's exiled. And what's worse is that not only is he exiled and banished, But what we see is he's humiliated and he suffers shame. The Philistines who were in awe of God, of the Ark of the Covenant, who had heard stories about the power of God, just realized that they were more powerful than God himself, Yahweh. God is humiliated. He is put to shame. He is seen as weak. And this is the story of our God that though we want to control him, Though we deserve to be exiled, what does God do? He suffers. He's put to shame. He's defeated for our sake so that we might have a true, real, authentic relationship with our God, the creator of the universe. What kind of God would allow himself to be humiliated? What other religion can say my God is put to shame, is humiliated for my sake so that he could accomplish his purposes and desire a real relationship with me? No one. There is no God like that. But here, this is the story of God's love and his pursuit for you and for me. 
Though they deserve to be exiled, though we deserve to be banished and ashamed for what we did, God is the one who takes on shame. He's the one who takes on humiliation and suffers. And we see that when God puts on flesh. When he takes on flesh, he takes on perishability. He takes on weakness. He enters into a world of sin, of evil, of brokenness, disaster. He experiences all of this for us. He loses. He dies. But in that moment when he suffers and dies, was God not working? Was God not working? That he was beginning the work of reconciling man to himself as he put on all the sins of the world upon him. He was beginning the work of setting captives free. He was beginning the work of setting us free from the bondage of sin. As Paul says, God chose what was foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what was weak, or what was weak in the world to shame the strong. Don't you see the cross was a symbol of shame? It was one of humiliation. Jesus, though we don't see these in pictures, Jesus was naked, hanging on a cross. God himself was naked in front of his creation, hanging on a cross, dying for his people, losing. Why? So that we might have a real relationship with our Savior. It was horrible. But it was necessary so that we might have faith. Not some superstitious religion, but a real relationship with the God of the universe who is willing to disappoint us, accomplish and fulfill his word, and to take on shame and weakness so that we might experience the fullness, the wonder, the beauty of what a real relationship looks like as we follow Jesus. You see, this whole time we've been seeing that you cannot obligate God. You cannot obligate God. But what God has done is he has obligated himself through his son Jesus so that we may never lose him and experience the grace and love of our God. I know that many of us are going through hard circumstances in life, hardships that we are experiencing right now. But might I suggest, even if we don't find God useful and we don't get all that we want, what we see here in this story today is that I would hope that we would find him beautiful. And that's what we get here at the table this morning. What a beautiful picture of God's shame for us. That he would be banished and exiled, humiliated, so that we might experience the love of our Savior. So as we come to the table this morning, for anyone who has placed their faith in Jesus, experience his grace. Come to him and know that I'm no longer willing to put you in my back pocket. But whatever you give me, I will endure because you endured it all for me. That is the good news of Jesus. So as you come to the table, experience that love, that wonder, and the beauty of our Savior. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you, Lord, that there is no other God in this world that would ever put himself in harm's way who be ashamed and suffer and experience the scorn of his own creation. But that was you. You took on flesh. You took on perishability. You took on weakness. 
so that we might be able to know that you are good, that no matter what we go through, Lord, you will be with us and that your presence always abides with us, even as we're reminded here at the table. So, Lord, as we feast upon you, what is broken here, and we feast and experience the flourishing that only comes in Jesus. Do that work we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.